You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mission Lab. We're here. I'm really excited to be here with a friend of mine named Michael Nixon. And uh, I'm excited he's willing to come on this podcast and to share with me and our listening audience a very important topic. And uh, Michael, thank you for being on with me. Oh, Sean, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So, Michael, you are the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion at Andrews University. Did I get that title right? You did. All right. Awesome. And Michael, you have even the greater distinction of being the husband of my very good friend, Tassiana Nixon, a native New Englander. And that's really awesome. You guys have a little one, Noah, right? Is that all you have these days? We do. And I I knew that within the first minute you were going to work in a New England reference. And Uh, so I I, I braced myself for that. So that was... uh, uh, You braced yourself. Uh There you go. Pardon the pun. Uh, Uh (laughs) uh, Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was a slick way for you to do it, referencing the family. (laughs) But yes, um, we do have one daughter. Her name's Noah Elise Nixon, and she's five. And um, she's ready for kindergarten, but we'll see what that looks like. Yeah. That's probably a different podcast. Yeah, man, is it ever. Um, I also did need to sneak in here, Michael. You probably anticipated this as well. The only bad thing I could say about you is, of course, that you are a New York Yankees fan. (laughs) But I trust my audience that they are mature enough not to turn you off at this point. I appreciate that. I I at least have the distinct pleasure of having been actually born in New York. I know there are a lot of Yankee ah, fans that, yes. um, you know, just kind of latch themselves on to our winning tradition, which is very lengthy and extensive. And uh, that's <laughs> probably also another podcast. And I don't want you to get, I don't want your New England subscribers to unsubscribe. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay. That's very nice of you. That's very nice of you. <laughs> I want, I want to mention, uh, it needs to be mentioned here, Michael, you have a degree in law. Yes. And you have practiced law in the past. Before you went to Andrews to serve in your current position, uh, just explain a little bit because it's not unrelated at all to the topic mm-hmm. at hand. I don't think uh, what you what you were doing prior to your uh, position at Andrews. Sure. So I was working at the Fair Housing Justice Center in New York City. I served as their legal coordinator for probably just under four years. Prior to being placed in that role, I was just sort of a volunteer staff attorney for about four or five months. So spent about a year total in the organization. And uh, it was a civil rights nonprofit. We had a small staff of about, you know, seven, eight people total. Uh, We were the only uh, fair housing. And and just to be clear, of course, you know, there's the Civil Rights, Fair Housing Civil Rights Act, which was passed uh, with a wave of legislation um, in the wake of Dr. King's assassination in in 68. It was passed um, in the week pretty much after his assassination. And of course, housing was a huge um, emphasis point uh, of his his justice journey, uh, particularly towards the end of his life as he was looking more at broader 
economic um, issues and of course uh, the effects that that race can have on those economic realities for minorities. But yeah, at FHJC, um, we were just responsive to housing discrimination complaints of sadly, which there was a lot in the five boroughs. Um, and we were the only fair housing civil rights nonprofit to be conducting testing investigations in that entire region. And so you can imagine with a staff our size, how daunting that was. Um, but it, it was really good work. And um, I still definitely have a huge passion for housing and how it's foundational to a lot of the disparities that we see across other um, areas of life. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I did. That was sort of my first, I guess, official, official job. I did some other odd jobs before that um, out of law school. Well, wow, it's really interesting. And I remember sitting down with you, I don't know, a couple of years ago now, and you were explaining to me, and of course, this, this, you know, we can probably get into this a little bit more later, but mm-hmm. um, the idea that it kind of, a lot of it starts with, with housing. A lot of it starts yeah. with fair housing. And, and, you know, obviously America has this history of, of uh, housing discrimination, which the effects of which we see still today and, yeah. um, you know, all the implications for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In the housing arena, uh, we would often go back to this phrase that, um, you know, the outcomes that we see in life really starts as a matter of place. And and the idea of place obviously starts with, you know, where do you live? And and it affects, you know, from there, um, it it affects obviously um, the school educational opportunities that you and your children will have, the employment opportunities, the access to healthcare, the access to good nutritional choices and things of that nature, access to good, um, if you're in a larger city, um, public transportation or other transportation options to get you to employment um, uh, uh, options and opportunities. And so, yeah, it really does, you know, from my perspective, and, you know, I'm perhaps a a bit biased um, because of the fact that that's where the foundation of my work started. Uh, but I think that uh, that matter of place is still just so key uh, for the the further outcomes in an individual's life. Um, and also just the ability to pursue home ownership and using that sort of foundational establishment of wealth uh, to provide other opportunities for a person who's maybe interested in starting a business or whatever the case may be, or just need some good equity so that they can use that to get access to other streams of funds to pursue other opportunities. And this whole idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness really starts with uh, where are those lives living? Um, And then it really goes up from there. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, we could talk about that all day and maybe we'll, we'll get back around to it. But um, so, so from there, um, I just want to jump in here just from an overall kind of macro perspective and sure. maybe it's, it's kind of a, a silly question, but wh- where do you see this country is and, and then also more specifically the kind of the Christian community is when it comes to issues of, of racism and anti-racism racism, uh, right now at this point? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's probably good to, you know, so I'll start here with the positive that, you know, we're having a lot more of these conversations in a lot more uh, areas that I would have never expected to hear these conversations being had, you know, so that's, I think, a, 
mm-hmm. a, a really good thing as far as um, the fact that we're even able to have um, conversations in which folks are starting to see things like structural and systemic racism as more of a reality as opposed to um, a debate or something to that effect. And there's still, you know, there, there's still some things to iron out in the conversation. I don't want to, you know, assume that the conversation is happening perfectly all across our country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we really have in, in the wake of some some tragedies and continued tragedies as, you know, we think about, you know, not just George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, but also uh, Breonna Taylor, most notably in the fact that, um, you know, her killers have not been charged at all. And, and there continues to be an outcry for that um, as well. Um, but the fact that, that, that um, you know, at the early part of this, I was sort of expecting, yeah, this is going to die out pretty quick. But the conversation has really continued for longer than I can remember in, in recent memory, definitely since, you know, 2014, when, when Black Lives Matter began. This is definitely the most sustained conversation we've had in our country about this topic, um, definitely since that point. Um, I'd say as, as it relates to our church, I think that it's been a mixed bag. I think there have been some good conversations that have happened, but um, we're, we're now seeing, um, you know, some some interesting dialogue and discussion around, you know, thinking about Black Lives Matter in particular, and I know you've done some posting and, and uh, talking about this, and uh, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of back and forth, both in social media comments and inbox <laughs> conversations mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. whether or not Christians should be engaged and involved and supportive of Black Lives Matter. And so th- that's just a, a reminder of um, the need that there needs to be, particularly in Christian circles, around understanding Number one, the ways that we've been complicit um, and safe places for racism historically, Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes serving as not just um, folks who are complicit or innocent or silent bystanders, but also at times architects in our country's history of uh, systemic racism being architected by Christians and and folks who um, were very unapologetic about their Christianity and also unapologetic about their racism, sadly, at times in our history. And so um, there's a lot that continues to need to be unpacked, in particular, I think, within the church. Um, uh, To be frank, I would say we are lagging behind the more general conversation in the country. But as much as we can kind of see those in two categories, I I also want to be clear in saying that, um, you know, For me personally, I don't see much of a divide between what we would label as the secular and what we would label as the sacred. I think that in the eyes of God, of course, um, everything belongs, everyone belongs, and it's all a part of the larger narrative of what it means to be human and what it means to be an image bearer of God and, and how we as the body of Christ now can you know wrestle with how do we better reflect uh, the ways of Christ being followers of that way um, as we engage in this conversation? So that's something that we continue to need to pursue in some more um, tangible and direct ways within uh, the in, within Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you 
are really tired of this question because <laughs> I know I'm tired of it. Um, and uh, so let's be tired but, together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's be tired together. Like the common response so frequently is, okay, systemic racism happened during the time of slavery. It happened during the era of Jim Crow, but from like 1964-ish or on, like there's no such thing as systemic racism anymore. Mm. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I think that it's important to understand. So uh, I, I operate by the the saying, or one of the sayings I operate by is that, you know, clarity is kindness. I think it's Brene Brown who started uh, mm. that mm -hmm. phrase. And so the, I think the important thing at first is to be clear as to the definitions of the terms that we're using, you know? Mm -hmm. yes. And so my, my first thought in that particular instance is does can the person actually articulate a workable definition for structural or systemic racism? And do they, do they by saying just the word systemic in front of racism, do they actually just mean interpersonal or internalized, or maybe they'd even get up to institutional racism. And so, and, and I'd say in most instances, persons who say that are thinking about what they think to be structural or systemic racism as actually, you know, internalized racism, prejudice, or interpersonal racism. So, so just looking at sort of those four levels. And so internalized racism, obviously, you know, that's something that lies within the individual, our private beliefs and biases about race and racism, which are often, which are influenced by our culture. And that can take many forms. And I, I mentioned the word prejudice. So that can be prejudice towards others of a different, different race or internalized oppression that could be negative beliefs about oneself uh, by persons of color. So there's a lot of even internalized racism, I would say, within mm -hmm. um, what we would call the black community, where, mm -hmm. um, you know, because this is not just about a black and white or everything in between issue, because oftentimes there are lots of cultures of people that are left out of the conversation. But there are versions of internalized racism and beliefs about uh, superiority or entitlement by white persons that can in, that exists inside of all of us. Then you have interpersonal racism, uh, which occurs between individuals. You know, and this is what I think most folks are talking about when they say racism. Mm -hmm. You know, this is bias that occurs when individuals interact with others, um, and it's their personal racial beliefs which affect then their public interactions uh, with other persons. Um, then above that, you have institutional, and sometimes folks use institutional and systemic interchangeably. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'd say the slight difference is that institutional racism occurs within a particular institution of power, uh, so that it refers to unfair policies or discriminatory practices that routinely produce racially inequitable outcomes for persons of color and lead to advantages either uh, intentionally or unintentionally for, for white people. Um, and individuals within institutions can take on the power of that institution when they reinforce those racial inequities. And so that's institutional racism. And then lastly, you have structural or systemic racism, which now is racial bias among more than one institution and across society. And it involves the cum cumulative and compounding effects of an array of societal factors so this can include the history, culture, ideology, and, inter and interactions 
of institutions and policies that systemically privilege white persons and disadvantaged persons of color. So looking now, after getting through all of that, looking now at where we're at with systemic racism, you know, to the extent that we're able to identify um, interactions of institutions or policies or even ideology or cultural beliefs uh, about persons of color that systemically privilege white persons and disadvantage persons of color, well, then we still have systemic racism. And I mean, we can talk through some of the various different examples mm-hmm. of that, but that's a big part of the conversation, whether it's, you know, health disparities we've seen, even in response to, um, you know, the amounts of contractions and deaths um, related to COVID-19. I mean, that's something that's happening right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. where persons of color are disproportionately affected by that disease. And again, it goes back largely to some of those disparities we were just talking about, whether it's in housing and housing discrimination, and which leads to less access to healthcare or better nutrition or all these other things, or the fact that those comorbidities can develop within a person of color that's dealing with some of these other disadvantages that are embedded into the system of uh, American society and the country at large. And so, I mean, that's one example of, of, I mean, a lot of folks are talking about our criminal justice system. Uh, and a lot of people aren't even comfortable using the word justice anymore in relation yeah. to that system. Yeah, um, I noticed that. And so um, in there, I mean, then you, then of course there's lots of different examples and studies and documentaries which show the disproportionate um, effects of, you know, policies within that system um, with mass incarceration Um with the disparities in uh, persons of color and white individuals as far as the penalties for the same crimes, things of that nature. These are all, and there's several others, and you know, I don't want to drone on and on about this particular part of the conversation, but it's just important for folks to understand that um, to the extent that you continue to see those disparities across a number of systems, systemic racism still exists. And it's not necessarily about intent as you get to that level as well. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the indictment is not that you have a bunch of bigoted or prejudiced persons who are actively um, enforcing or, or fighting to continue the, you know, systemic racism, although there are some examples of that. Um, this is at the point where it's like, you know, um, one good um, analogy for, a systemic racism is by um, the author and scholar, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, uh, who's written some amazing books. If folks Google her, she's a really amazing resource. She talks about systemic racism being like smog, you know, so there's some times where, you know, that smog or fog is very visible to us. And there's other times where it's not visible, but we, we're still breathing it into our lungs. You know, and mm-hmm. so whether you can mm-hmm. see it or not, um, you know, you may recognize the smell um, or even if you don't, you're breathing it in and it's having an effect on um, your health and, and, and the health of our country. And so um, hopefully that's a that was helpful for some folks mm-hmm. in framing that. Yeah, I think I think what I picked up uh, with some folks who are trying to wrap their minds around this conversation uh, 
whether they're really open-minded or not. I don't, you know, I can't read their heart or whatever, but mm-hmm. it feels like there's a lot of people who are a little frustrated because there's, they feel like the definition of racism has kind of been like changed. And in their yeah. mind, they just think of it as interpersonal racism. And now you're bringing this idea of institutional and then systemic racism. And then I think it, it, some of the books I'm reading as well, it, it does seem like those levels are conflated very often. Like sure. a, a person will go out of their way to talk about systemic racism and then you'll keep reading and all the examples they give seemingly are like interpersonal ra- racism. Yeah. Um, and so how do we like, how do we have those conversations and distinguish between the two and like, does one yeah. lead to the other? Does, does, uh, are they just kind of independent of each other or how do we, how do we wrap our minds around that? That's good. So uh, maybe another shorthand and, and I gave a, a very long drawn out definition of the different levels of racism. Another way to think about racism, particularly on the systemic level. And then, and then now we're talking, we're going to talk about how individuals can fit into a system of racism is thinking of racism as prejudice plus power. And so, some of the examples of how systemic racism can uh, continue to carry itself out is that you do have persons who are in positions of power that have internalized racist ideas, ideologies, perceptions, beliefs, and then they allow those beliefs and perceptions and uh, biases about race and racism that are influenced by their culture to now infect the way that they exercise their power within an institution or across a number of institutions, which then makes it a systemic issue or problem. And so, so that, that's hopefully how we can make the distinction. Uh, Because again, I think we all, if we're being honest, we deal with internalized racism, we deal with internalized prejudice, that no one is immune to that. Uh, We, we all have those things. And, you know, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, talks about how he has anti-racist days and he has racist days. And what he's talking about there is the fact that he understands that there are these internalized prejudices that we have to continue to make ourselves aware of and, and try to work to root out uh, from the way that we operate. But the important thing is for us to take intentional steps to make sure that our internalized prejudice does not coalesce and connect to the the amount of power that we have within an institution or across a system of institutions. Because if we do, then you, you'll start to have a racist uh, effect, whether that's a racist policy or a racist idea which governs policy and procedure. Um, that is how it can manifest itself and then have a systemic impact across institutions were that person to be in that kind of a position of power, uh, which then can lead to uh, racist outcomes. Yeah. I think for me, I've been somewhat like trying to demythologize racism, if I could put it in that term. Or maybe demystify. Demystify. That'd be yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Like, cause, cause I think my, um, some of the problem is that a white person hears this and they think, oh man, that means I'm a bad person because 
I or I'm in the KKK from... or, yeah. I, or, or I use racial slurs or whatever the case may be. Yeah. yeah. So, so right. then how do we help people see that it doesn't necessarily make a, you a bad person because you benefit from, you know, systemic racism or white privilege? You know, I've had sure. I've had people threatening to discontinue friendships because of my insinuation that they benefited from white privilege and yeah. it's just there's just so much stigma there um like on the one hand we don't want to diminish the significance of it but on the other hand right. you know how do we you know what i'm saying yeah no it's it's a really good point so i think you hit the nail on the head you know at the beginning there we do have to so we need to demystify our conversations around racism race and racism and we also need to um really sort of reorient the way that we approach the conversation because the way that we have approached conversations around race and racism historically in this country and so we've been conditioned to have the conversation this way is to say that um racism is the kkk or you know racism is a racial mm -hmm. slur mm -hmm. and um so long as i don't say those things and you know icing on the cake is if i have you know friends that are non-white or hey, we even adopted someone who's non-white into the family. That's even better, you know. And and, and yeah. those all become just sort of um, these things that are tools in our tool belt to say, um, you know, hey, I, I'm not a racist because I don't because I don't do these things that we've placed into this very limited view of what racism is historically. And so, with that being said, like because of that, I, I don't necessarily. Um, you know, I, I don't get into like bashing folks or things like that, or, you know, who have that, um, who have that view of the conversation around race and racism, because again, that's the way we've been conditioned to have the conversation in America, you know? And so our, our upbringing and education on things, even like, you know, slavery, for example, is very limited. It, it basically goes something like, you know, there were slaves in this country or enslaved persons in this country and there were some good black you know there were some bad slave owners but then there were some good ones and then some years later um or you know lincoln freed the slaves and then you know mlk preaches i have a dream speech and now everything's okay and and i'm saying that not to be facetious but to say that was mm -hmm. literally yeah. like what we were taught in school yeah. like generations yeah, yeah. of us have been taught that and so yeah. um so so because of that when you hear the you know the the word or 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 you hear even the insinuation like oh i could be racist then you know there's an emotional response to that which i understand you know and so yeah. as it pertains to the conversation around privilege the way that i try to approach that and, and i know like this isn't necessarily um unique to myself but i try to just talk about the concept of privilege in general uh before zeroing in on white privilege because for example uh i mean one example under the diversity umbrella and part of the work that i do is that um it's inarguable that our campus is harder to navigate for someone who has a physical disability um we have mm -hmm. a lot of older buildings on our campus and some of them were built before um the accessibility laws and things of that nature were passed both in public accommodations as well 
as in the fair housing amendments around that happened in the 80s. And so um, a lot of our buildings were built before that. And so while we have made some steps to make them more accessible, there still continues to be challenges in that area, particularly when you're talking about a snowy Bering Springs, Michigan winter. And if the roads aren't cleared or the sidewalks and things of that nature aren't cleared, it's going to be much more difficult for that person on a, on a consistent basis to traverse our campus. And so me or you being able-bodied is going to have a much easier time traversing our campus just built upon the fact that within society in general, we have struggles with accessibility um, as it pertains to someone who has a physical disability or who's wheelchair bound or, or anything to that effect. It's going to be more difficult for them to um, get around. And that does not mean that every able-bodied person hates persons with physical disabilities. You know, that's not the case. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't change the reality that there's that disparity there and that it will take a lot of long-term intentional work to make our society a more accessible place for those persons. And so, um, again, it's not it's not to say that those of us who are able-bodied haven't worked hard to achieve the things that we've achieved in life um, or had to go to school or if we didn't go to school, had to work, you know, two, three, four different jobs to provide for families or things of that nature. Um, and it's just that, hey, that doesn't change the fact that we have this unearned privilege and just sort of hit the biological lottery to be able-bodied or to not have had a severe enough accident to have that taken from us, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I start, I try to start there. Uh, it doesn't always work, but it, it hopefully starts it in a less emotionally, a less emotionally charged place for persons um, to help them understand that um, it's inarguable that in different facets of life, there are certain folks who have unearned privileges. It doesn't make them bad persons, but it doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. Yeah, that's really good. I really like that analogy. I, I think what I hear, see if you if this resonates with you. To, to me, I've been, I think that some of the interpersonal racial issues have as much to do with a person's emotional intelligence as yeah, just about anything else. I mean, because I I know responses like there's this there's this hard line, you know, and I don't want to just make it about people on the right, but it's like there's this this anger or this frustration that there's these people who seem to be so easily offended. You know, now we mm. have to make sure everyone feels coddled and. You know the able, you know the disabled, or whether it's the people of color, and it's just like all these snowflakes are, you know, mm -hmm. and and people just try to invalidate others' stories. Um, right. And so, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and it's interesting because then when someone says Black Lives Matter, then some of those persons become the snowflakes, or whatever <laughs> the case may be. You know, so, so true, so, so think, true. So I think that you know, at the end of the day, everybody. And, and then a lot of people rail against the whole idea of safe spaces and things like that. And maybe there's better language for what that means. I think what folks yeah. want are um, spaces where they can be heard without instantly being shouted down or canceled or 
um, ostracized, whatever the case may be, because as much as it can appear that the folks on the ideological left or right are saying different things, I think oftentimes they're just saying they're saying the same things in different ways, you know, and yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think everybody wants to be seen and heard and valued. Um, and so in particular, in this conversation, I've done a lot of work around um, other centered empathy. And mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. the same time, there does need to be uh, boundaries in conversation. Uh, sometimes I talk about these conversations being, you know, there's the danger of dialogue when there mm. is not sort of there's not clear sort of guidelines or expectations about where the conversation's going or the buy-in from the persons who are at the table or, or a shared buy-in from persons who are in the conversation. It, 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 that's the case. And, and if there's no foundational relationship that is had between the persons having the conversation, um, it oftentimes does not go well and that dialogue can be dangerous and oftentimes even more da damaging than if you were to not pursue it at all. So I think that that understanding is really important. But I have done a lot of work around, um, first of all, some internal work of understanding myself um, and then hopefully helping to better understand others. Um, there's a quote that I love um, that's been used by a number of, of different theologians that I read and, and um, follow. Um, and the quote goes that pe people don't see the world as it is. They see the world as they are. And so mm -hmm, whenever mm -hmm. someone is communicating to me on in this particular conversation or um, the, anything under the diversity and inclusion umbrella, I understand and recognize that their opinion or what they're saying to me is, is shaped by um, their upbringing, their their cultural context, their an experience or experiences that they've had, um, that can help me. You know, th there's another um, tenet which is part of um, some of the the conversations that we host on our campus called Story Circles, which is uh, a branch of the Racial Healing Circle methodology. One of the touchstones that we have, which are which are our community agreements going into those conversations that I really love, is the reminder that when things get difficult, turn to wonder. And, and the wonder question is, I wonder what happened to this person. I wonder what's informing the mm -hmm. words that they're saying. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, um, as opposed to instantly shutting down and trying to fix one of our another one of another one of our tenants is no fixing and um mm -hmm. and understanding that everybody is the um expert on their own particular experience and so mm -hmm. to the extent That's that good. someone is sharing their opinion as rooted in their personal experience and narrative um then you know our call is to be open and to listen um but when it veers into trying to decide for other people what yeah. they should think or say about themselves, then I think that's dangerous territory for sure. Yeah, I really like that. Everyone's an expert in their own experience. That's really, really good. Mm -hmm. I was also listening uh, this morning to N.T. Wright uh, podcast mm -hmm. and kind of going back to what you were saying. 
and this kind of get us off on a, a, a long tangent, but I just want to place this in here. Um, sure. there, the, the podcast was, was talking about Paul mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what do we do with Paul where some of his counsel is seemingly culturally conditioned and N.T. Wright, I love this brother. He said, well, the danger we have in that is that we think that only some of what Paul wrote was culturally conditioned when the reality is all of it was culturally mm, conditioned. Yeah. Even even the, the doctrine of justification by faith is itself culturally conditioned. So, I mean, that's just so important. It's not to deny, you know, absolute truth. It's just simply saying that we all live life through the prism of our own experiences. um, Mm -hmm. And we, we desperately need to understand that. So kind of segueing here, and this is, of course, is another huge uh, pushback, but you know, the common refrain, Michael, is why are we talking about all this racism stuff Racism is a a sin problem. It's not a skin problem. Uh, you know, our 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 role as as God's people is to just preach the gospel. Or within you know yours and my particular faith community context, you know, preach present truth or preach the three angels' messages. So, like, yeah, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, my response is simple. simple. You know, murder is a sin problem, and so rather (laughs) than um, rather than prosecuting folks for uh, murder, uh, we should uh, just say, "Hey, you know, are you sorry for doing that?" Okay, cool, and you know, we just all move on with our lives, and you know, preach the gospel to them. Yeah, just preach the gospel, and you know, maybe they can be redeemed through that process. But as far as them. Uh, paying any sort of penalty for that or um, there being any kind of pushback on the behavior, uh, no, we're going to let that go. So I I think that you can see how very, that's obviously an extreme example. And and I'm not trying to equate, you know, sins here or whatever the case may be. There's Mm -hmm. obviously a spiritual dimension to this. And my response is that due to the fact that we recognize the fact that there is, um, a sin problem and a spiritual dimension to the ill of racism, then those of us who are followers of the way, um, that's that's even more of a call for us to actively engage in the conversation <laughs> because we've mm-hmm. been called mm-hmm. to help awaken folks to sin problems so that they can then turn to the solution for sin problems, which is not us or any man-made institution or any human person, but to Christ himself to eradicate that ill and sickness that resides within them, within the institutions or systems that they have power over so that they can repent of it and then make recompense for it and then move forward in a more Christ honoring a way following uh, future for that person and that institution. And so um, I think that that's our prophetic call of, you know, during you know, what we assume to be the last days of, of Earth's history. And I surely believe that we are, um, you know, we're in an, an era and an age where um, it's really important for us to understand that um, we need to stop wasting time, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, time, we're, we're all on borrowed time. Uh, for, for, for all of us as individuals, personally, we understand that, you know, we're, we're all on, that borrowed time. And so it's really important for us to then um, 
say, hey, well, there's a sin problem here. Well, then that means that it needs to be addressed with some gospel infused clarity. Um, and it needs to be called out um, in the same ways that, that Jesus himself called um, issues out and, 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 and understanding and remembering that, um, you know, addressing and, and speaking out on these issues was a part of the foundation of his ministry as he launched it in Nazareth in Luke 4. And so um, there's a lot of context for that. There's a lot of um, foundation for us to rely upon there. And we shouldn't shy away from it, you know, because yeah. just saying something's a sin problem and, oh, well, then that means we can disengage. Well, then we need to start applying that to all of the various different, you know, sin problems that we get very aggressive about and oftentimes very aggressive in our exclusion of persons when we label them as having whatever that particular sin problem we're labeling them to have is. Yeah. And of course the, you know, and, and this intersects with politics because the same people oftentimes will say, let's not pursue political solutions, you know, yeah. are often the people pushing for pro-life legislation and stuff like that. So it's just, yeah. I mean, we're all, we're all guilty of being inconsistent, but, um, you know, just, just recognizing it, I think is important. Uh, you know, speaking of the gospel, like for me, the money, the money texts are in Galatians there where Paul is, is writing, like, if anyone comes to you preaching any other gospel, let them be accursed. And then he goes on to describe how Peter was living a life of duplicity uh, when it came to ethnic descent, you know, and, and and he accuses Peter of, of distorting and and basically doing violence to the gospel when he refused to eat with the Gentiles. So like, this is a gospel work, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's clear. And, and when, when Paul did call Peter out, you know, in Acts, as it's recorded, it's one of my um, favorite stories to read. Um, Paul did not pull Peter aside privately and say, or, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, send him an inbox message. Of, of course, I'm being facetious there, but, he, you know, he, in front of everyone, rebuked Peter. And I think that there's a difference between shaming and a holy rebuke, obviously, because he didn't yeah. do it to try to embarrass Peter um, or, or something to that effect, but to call Peter up to a higher calling. And he felt that it was important enough that it needed to happen publicly in front of the persons that were being um, injured by, you know, Peter's bigotry in that moment. And I think that Paul, what Paul understood was that the folks who have been injured by um, this kind of conduct also need some sort of a public recompense, or they need to see that persons that are also in positions of power um, have the spiritual gospel infused integrity to speak up publicly and denounce that behavior. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really good point. Obviously kind of, I feel like the conversation, at least within the circles I travel lately, and it's, it seems to be within Christianity uh, in general, is, you know, is it okay for the Christian to involve him or herself with Black Lives Matter? And, you know, whether it's using the phrase because, you know, it might be misunderstood as, as endorsing an organization or even getting involved with the organization. I'll tell you, I'll tell you my bias 
I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. judge any hearts, but I'm sure you don't disagree with me that it feels like it's just a giant red herring when people yeah. bring this up. Is that is that how you're reading it? Yeah, that is. And I mean, and I don't want to to your point. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there are some folks out there, and I want to be, you know, as I talked earlier, I want to be empathetic and sensitive to where people yeah. are. Um, I think that there are some folks out there that genuinely maybe are confused or concerned or they've heard something or some things or maybe they've seen a sermon that's been floated around around a lot of places that has caused them some consternation. And um, so I do want to be sensitive to that for sure. Uh, But I also think to your point that um, this is another chapter in a long book of red herrings uh, that have been brought up by uh, persons of faith in response to Black Lives Matter since its inception in 2014. And so um, whether whether it was, you know, the invention of all, all Lives Matter as a response to that, and you've even had politicians that struggled with understanding uh, the need to say Black Lives Matter and the fact that All Lives Matter was in, in many ways um, just a shutdown tactic of the conversation. Um, and and there have been a number of other red herrings that have evolved between that point and now. And so with that being said, what I would say to persons is, um, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, I, I would, I would um, challenge any person to find a man-made institutional organization that didn't have any particular tenant um, involved with it that they don't agree with. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. that you'd be hard pressed to do that. Um, At the end of the day, this is the this is about the value of human life and the value of black lives in particular. And and the reality is that all black lives matter. And, um, you know, if if we want to get into opinions about different lifestyles or whatever the case may be, um, I think that that's a real distraction from the issue at hand and and the thing that would we would be better served to focus on is the fact that again you know Brianna Taylor's killers have not been arrested <laughs> when um yeah you know they yeah. showed up they showed up to the wrong house in plain clothes at almost 1 a.m. in the morning and just started open firing at the wrong address and didn't find anything that they were looking for and it's been almost like 4 months now mm. and nothing's happened and so um, that should be causing a lot more consternation and frustration and outrage than a couple of red herrings that folks are pointing to to try to discredit the movement. And so I would encourage folks to engage. I mean, you, you wrote a powerful uh, Facebook note, I think, on this as well, which this showed that there's some history even within our denominational context of our, our founders aligning with movements that may have been advocating for other things that maybe didn't align with some of your personal convictions on an issue or two. But I think that the broader conversation that has been sparked by the Black Lives Matter movement is something that uh, would benefit from our engagement. And, and, you know, there's been some conversation around, oh, you know, are some of the folks who were founders involved in some different spiritual movements or whatever the case may be. What I would say in response to that is another way to look at that is to what extent is that an indictment on the Christianity's lack of engagement in the movement? 
You know, one of the reasons why the civil rights movement was so powerful was the fact that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a minister and Mm -hmm. he did not see any divide between the tenets of the civil rights movement and his his spreading of the gospel message, which was his training to do based upon uh, his belief system and um, the fact that nonviolent activism is something that is still a prominent part of movements to this day. It's a prominent part of the Black Lives Matter movement, the 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 idea of nonviolent action and protest. And um, I think the fact that there's been a void of the Christian voice oftentimes within these movements, you know, can lead folks to try to find a spiritual connection somewhere else because we all, as we know, as, as, as believers, those of us who are, who are listening, there is a God-sized spiritual void inside of all of us. And mm-hmm. um, we're all on some level searching for that void to be filled. And if we, the persons of God and the follower, followers of the way, are not standing there to, with empathetic, under, other-centered love, uh, prepared to fill that void or to provide a context upon which that void can be filled, then we can't sit around and be frustrated about um, other spiritual movements uh, being engaged within it or whatever the case may be um, when we're not engaging in it. You know, it's saying, oh, well, that's not Christian and we as Christians are not going to engage. Well, well, then how how is anything going to be influenced by what you believe to be true when you don't engage? Yeah, absolutely. And you're you're so much more generous than I am, Michael. I appreciate you kind of reeling me in there with mm-hmm. with my uh, my judgment. But yeah, I, for <laughs> me lately, I've been I've been thinking about like so John and and First John. He he basically says, you know, how can you say you love God when you don't love your brother that you do see? Yeah, and it's it's kind of like uh, yeah. I can see what's right in front of my eyes. I know for sure that Black Lives Matter. Correct. I know for sure that there there have been incredible injustices. Beyond that, I don't see. I don't. I don't know what to tell anyone beyond that because a lot of it is speculation. You know, this agenda or that agenda, and I would hate to stand before the judgment seat and say, and God asked me, "Well, what did you do to the least of these?" And I said, "Yeah." I, I say, "Yeah," but God, I thought that would lead, you know, down a slippery slope. Right. And he's just asking me to like, just, just, just act on what you see and, and, you know, yeah, leave, leave those other concerns to me. Not that we should just be solely naive and oblivious. You know, sure. there is, sure. there obviously are forces um, at play in the universe yeah. and in the world. And let me, let me say this real quick, Sean, um, in addition, um, and I'll just put it on the table. So one of the things that a lot of Christians have issues with is the fact that Black Lives Matter has been unapologetic in saying that LGBTQ plus lives matter, Black LGBTQIA plus lives matter, mm-hmm. and that um, they've also talked about the the fact that they push back on and we talked about this um, uh, yesterday. My my colleague uh, Garrison Hayes, we co-host the podcast with some others called Affirmative Interaction, and he was actually talking yesterday about the fact that one of the things that they push back on, which a lot of folks get uh, nervous about, is 
what they term the nuclear family requirement. Now, a lot of people take that as to say they're pushing back on what what has traditionally been seen as the nuclear family, a man Mm -hmm. and a woman within a family. And they're actually not pushing back on that. What they're pushing back on is the idea that that needs to be the requirement. And they're saying that Mm -hmm. we are allowing people to make that choice for themselves. And irrespective of what choice that they make, we believe that their life matters too. And another part of that, because a lot of people in particular have issues with Black Lives Matter's, you know, focus or 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 conversation around um, Black transgender women. And what a lot of people miss is that, so getting back to red herrings, one of the big red herrings that have been thrown towards the Black Lives Matter movement has been, well, what about Black-on-Black crime? You guys don't talk about that. Oh, and you're yeah. just talking about police-involved shootings. Yeah. And... Um, which is not true just in general. Mm-hmm, it's not true mm-hmm. that we, that black and black, well, first of all, black and black crime is not a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, there's crimes of proximity and you don't ever hear anyone use the term white on white crime, even though the large majority of white persons are killed by other white persons because getting back to housing, as I'm bringing everything back full circle, <laughs> we still live in a very segregated society. And so oftentimes people do crimes against persons that they know and that they're close to. So, Putting all that aside, um, one of the reasons that they're focusing on Black transgender women in particular, Sean, is because of the fact that, so there's two really alarming stats as it pertains to Black transgender women. First of all, um, the average life expectancy of Black transgender women in this country right now is 35 years old. Wow. 35 years old. Wow. And the mortality rate is approaching like 50%, I want to say. Wow. Like 50%. And so, I mean, I saw a post the other day that there were there were seven Black transgender women that were killed, I think, earlier this week. And here's the rub with that. The vast majority of persons who are promulgating those crimes are Black men. And so mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. a police-involved killing in, in, in the majority of instances they're actually talking about what we call is the myth of black on black crime. And so what Black Lives Matter has done is to say, no, all Black Lives Matter in the different contexts of life, where are we seeing Black lives being endangered? And the evidence is clear that as it pertains to Black transgender women, there is a huge threat of violence to them towards, in the, the majority of instances, Black men who are doing harm to them at times, oftentimes fatal harm to them, to the point where, again, it's crazy to think that the life expectancy of folks in that demographic is 35 years old. And so in a a weird way, Black Lives Matter actually pushing back on the red herring of, well, what about Black on Black crime is now causing Christians to say, well, why are you talking about that particular conversation well, it's because they understand what's happening, you know, to black lives. And they think that regardless of what you think about those persons, they don't deserve to be killed. Definitely not at a 50 percent rate. And they definitely deserve to live longer than 35 years old. Wow, it's really interesting. And yeah, it's so critically important. I think, you know, regardless, and obviously this is another big conversation, but regardless, I would hope we could all agree, regardless of one's views on sexuality, yeah. It is never right. It is never good 
to have that sort of reality going on with a, a certain demographic of people. Yep. So I would hope we could all agree on that. But I unfortunately, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, and like, you know, we, I want, again, like with you, I want to be generous with people's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, motives and, and where they are. But uh, for whatever reason, people um, are at that place where they just, there's certain, you know, dog whistles and they hear these terms and, you know, they, they get scared and, and suddenly the whole, the whole conversation turns in a different direction. So, um, well, listen, Michael, we have been at this for almost an hour. We could go on for another two hours, three hours, three years, but, uh, (laughs) we, we won't, we won't extend it too much longer here. Maybe, uh, if you don't mind, maybe just kind of, kind of, close it by just be briefly outlining where do you see, how, how do you see a path forward? Um, and I sure. would say maybe, um, again, societally, but maybe even focusing more, um, as far as within the church itself, uh, how do we move forward? Sure. So maybe, maybe I'll, I'll go on the individual level. Um, so I, I, what I would say to everyone who's listening or, and again, you know, thank you for having me on Sean. Um, what I would yeah. say is that, um, there is a part and a role to play for everyone. So, you know, not, you know, we don't all have to be doing the same thing. Um, you know, maybe your thing is, you know, not, you know, having a podcast or talking on a podcast. Maybe it's not even posting on social media. Maybe for you, you are a artist, you're a, you know, which includes, you know, you know, painting, pictures, photography, musicianry, um, whatever the case may be. And, 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 you know, maybe that's your entry point into the conversation. Maybe it is posting things on social media or having, you know, conversations within your sphere of influence or pushing back on you know, that that uncomfortable comment, whereas previously maybe you would have just let it slide. Um, all of that belongs and all of that work is valuable. And, um, you know, e- even if, you know, when, when the when the marches die down or things of that nature, that individual work, uh, you know, compounded together um, can do a lot of good, uh, particularly within the systems and institutions that we are a part of, um, utilizing and leveraging the power and influence that we've been given within those spaces to make safe spaces and more inclusive, equitable spaces for others is vitally important. Um, I'd say within Christianity, um, Christianity has to look at, again, the ways that it has been an architect or complicit in the um you know the building of systemic racism across our society and to really do some introspection and recognize what those things are and take some intentional steps to um really begin to make uh recompense for that i know a book that we both enjoy and and was really Mm -hmm. helpful in that journey is jamar tisby's the color of compromise um, he he came and visited our campus this past November and just did a phenomenal job um, and is becoming a pretty good friend of mine now. And and so his his scholarly work in that book is phenomenal. And so I'd encourage your listeners to check that out uh, among a slew of 
uh, and there's actually a series of books that are coming soon. Uh, I know that Dr. Christina Edmondson, who's one of the co-hosts of the Truth's Table podcast, um, I just audited a course uh, that she taught on faithful anti-racism through Calvin University, which was phenomenal. And she let mm. us know that she is um, going to be, I think, co-authoring a book, which is going to be a part of a series on anti-racism in the church, which I believe mm. is going to start being rolled out this fall. And so I'll I'll let you know when, when those, those yeah. books start dropping and you can share those resources with listeners as well. But again, I, you know, there's a part for you to play. And, and, you know, if you don't have the perfect language or you don't know exactly what to say, uh, you know, reach out to Sean, reach out to a friend, you know, reach out to me, reach out to someone that, you know, you know, has, um, you know, put some thought into the conversation and, um, you know, all, all we need to be is willing vessels and, and God will work with us and meet us where we are. Um, and then take us where we need to be if we just commit to being available. Awesome, Michael. That's really good word. Uh, where, how could people get in touch with you if they do have questions for you? Sure. So um, I'm on I'm on Twitter. My tweets are unprotected uh, at VP <laughs> Nixon, and that's the O is actually a zero because that was taken already. But you can find me there on Twitter. Uh, Michael T. Nixon on Instagram. Um, you can search me on Facebook. Um, those are the easiest ways. Um, all that comes to my phone. Feel free to drop me a note, a DM, a message, anything like that, and uh, we can get connected. Awesome. Michael, man, thank you so much. As I said, I wish we had more time on here, but maybe uh, we'll be able to revisit this in a, a few months or so. Um, sure. So thanks for being on. We are one, of course, disagreement is, you know, go Red Sox. Um, but other <laughs> than Yankees. that, other than that, uh, thanks, Michael, for being <laughs> on the show. Give my regards to your lovely wife and your daughter and all the, the lovely kinfolk. So thanks for being on, Michael. And thanks, guys, for listening to the show. Great. Thanks again for having me on. And everybody, stay safe out there and go Yankees. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast.